Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. On today's show, Hallie Sutton, and the book is The Lady Upstairs. Look at that dynamite cover. It's fluorescent pink and yellow and makes your eyeballs sizzle. So does the story. And Hallie might look like good old American gal next door, but she's got a wicked, dark, sinister sense of craft. (laughs) She's a lot of fun. Let's get to it. Hallie is on The Thriller Zone. Hallie, how long has it been since we've been trying to hook up on this podcast? Uh, a couple months now, at least. I think our one of our last correspondences was May, perhaps. Yeah, and I don't. I'm not. Sh- I don't recall where you fell across my eyeballs, but I did. I did know that I saw the uh, the cover, and I friggin' loved it. Thank you. I, it's beautiful, isn't it? It is, and I, um, you know. Uh, this was one of those books, and we're gonna get to we're gonna get to the lady upstairs in a couple of minutes. But I'm just gonna say this: by it was, uh, it was truly unique, and I'm just gonna leave that in a pen. We're gonna come back to it. But, <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Yeah. You know, we're gonna talk about the lady upstairs, but I want to talk about the lady across from me. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I know that you got a little bit of claim to fame with Pitch Wars, which for any of my listeners who don't know what Pitch Wars is, can you explain that and then we'll go from there? Sure. Uh, so sadly, Pitch Wars is now defunct. Somebody might um, refunct it <laughs> <laughs> at some point, but it it was um, for 10 years a free mentorship program where somebody who is either an author, an editor, an agent, I actually think it was more authors and editors, would sign up as a mentor to help somebody whose book was in good shape, but needed some transformation to really go the extra mile. And so authors and editors sign up as mentors, and then they receive pitches, kind of almost like queries um, from anyone who wanted to enter. I think the year that I, so I have experience on both sides of the fence. I've been both a mentor and a mentee. So the year that I was a mentee, I think we had 4,000 people apply for just over a hundred spots. Um, and so then you work one-on-one with your mentor for about three to four months to really do some transformative change to your book. And at the end, there's an agent showcase in which agents get kind of an up close and personal look and can request to read fulls or 25 pages. It kind of helps fast track the query process a little bit. So wait a minute. Uh, I've been a fan of this forever. No one, t- Hey, no one told me that they canceled it. When did they, when did they cancel it? I think last year was the last year. I think, um, you know, it was run by some really great people, but it was just such a huge enterprise every year that I think uh, they decided finally to kind of shutter it. Oh man. My sister and I, she's also a writer. We used to, uh, throw notes back and forth. Hey, throw me your pitch for us. What I loved about it is it really taught you how to hone, you know, get that elevator pitch. I got a buddy, uh, Steve Stratton, who (laughs) he's got his first novel out. And uh, we were talking about the pitch. I'm like, and he started to do his pitch one day. Hallie, you'll appreciate this. And he's going on and on and on. I'm like, Steve, (laughs) Yeah, we've already gone up the elevator, had a couple of drinks and lunch, come back down. We're in the garage. You're still talking. So 
<laughs> right. We didn't hearing it in real time, reading the whole book, basically. Yeah. Pitches, concise pitches are really hard to come up with. It's something I struggle with still. Uh, I, I have a couple writer friends who really love doing them, but I think it's really hard to sum up a book well. And that's kind of the magic of it. Well, I was going to save this for later. I'm going to mention this right now. You, your agent, uh, Sharon Pelletier, right? Pelletier, yeah. I met her at Thriller Fest 2019. Oh, lovely. The nicest, kindest, most encouraging gal I've met. I mean, yeah. she. we were doing the uh, the pitch fest and, and she, she was so delicate. It was kind of like, that's that is really good and you know she was just the way she went it's good I, I think it's interesting but it's not for me but i didn't walk away feeling busted in the kneecaps no absolutely sharon is the best sharon is uh very like you said very good with feedback and i've gotten plenty of it from her over the years and um but very, she has a really good editorial eye too. I, I lucked out. She's a great agent. Yeah. One of those best compliments I can make is that it has a rich, nostalgic feel of Raymond Chandler. Oh, thank you. Which I know happens to be one of your faves. And I'm just like, wow. It was like reading Raymond through a woman's voice. Why, thank you. That's like such a deep compliment. I really appreciate that. Thank you. No, that's what just, I mean, in the first few pages, you're just like, who is this person? And I instantly started, okay, like, how many she got? 10, 15 books, 20, 20 books. I'm like, what? What? That's a debut novel. What? <laughs> yeah, thank you. That's such a huge compliment. Um, and he was definitely a huge inspiration, obviously, uh, the father of noir. So it's, it's fun to kind of like, I felt like at times when I was running into, um, creative corners and lacking creative juice, I would pull up something that Chandler had done and been like, okay, what's my take on this? How do you write like against him? You know, like, how do you, not that I'm comparing myself to him, but just like, how do I feel about what he's written and how do you use that to kind of like propel your own um, creative juice out of it? That's so interesting. Uh, what a great uh, exercise because you wouldn't want to copy but uh, plagiarized, but you but you can certainly borrow the influence, which you have clearly done. Thank you. Yes. I mean, right down to the, uh, oh, what was this line? I poured myself a bourbon and, and dropped in two sweating ice cubes. <laughs> I don't know why that stuck out in my head, but. <laughs> I'm glad it did. It's always nice to know, um, you know, when lines stick. Yeah. And there's a number of times when there have been a couple of lines that uh, have stuck out, but that one, for some reason, I think because it's so visceral and so, you know, come on in and sit down. See, you know, it's just <laughs> kind of a, <laughs> anyway. Oh, also my new friend, Sam Bailey, who I met to, to drop thriller fest again <laughs> in the conversation, mm -hmm. she put it well, I think I, maybe it was on your Twitter feed. She says it's a feminist crime noir that sizzles with tension. And I'm like, that's slightly abbreviated, but dang, <laughs> dang, it's good. Right. I mean, just and she is such a wonderful, incredible writer and so generous. And so to get that blurb from her was like, oh, Sam Bailey likes my books, you know, like it was, it was really incredible. Isn't that a nice feeling? And a lot of people may not understand that. I guess it would be kind of like if, uh, if uh, I'm out on the golf course and uh, Tiger Woods walks by and says, man, that's a pretty great swing. And you'd be like, what? Yeah, totally. <laughs> it would be quite the compliment. Uh, are you a golfer? Yes. And by the way, that will never happen, Hallie. Okay. That just will never, <laughs> ever 
he would first of all, I wouldn't even recognize, wouldn't even see me. And second of all, well, it, yeah, there would be no compliment within a mile of my swing. But anyway, all right. I do want to know what were you doing? I know that you were, I've seen your name pop up on crime reads. So what were you doing before writing? What was that career impetus? Well, my career still, I have a day job, um, is uh, working at a publishing company, a non-competing publishing company. We're like a professional practice. I work on higher education newsletters. So I write and edit for um, six, well, uh, not six anymore, three higher education newsletters. And so there's no fiction involved in that, I'm assuming. (laughs) No, there's not. (laughs) No, there's not. However, I bet you could borrow a few scenes from your daily activities. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's some interesting, like weird crime in higher education, like the whole admission scandal that happened a couple of years ago. I mean, whenever a crime story breaks in higher education, I'm always turning an eye to it. Like what's happening over here? Yeah. um, You know, it's become a running joke on this show that uh, a question that I you'll probably never hear me ask, but does get asked by a lot of podcasters. uh, Where do you get your ideas? Uh. You know, which is just really. uh, (laughs) Oh, I don't know. And um, so to that point, there is a little piece of me, especially as I read your work and it's so. You know, it's the feminist side of things. So it's so fun to watch because being a guy, I don't I don't really get to look through that lens. But do you find and I, I've seen Me Too pop up in some of your threads and so forth. Do you find some of that, um, again, borrowing the headlines of today just kind of makes its way into your stories? Yeah, I definitely think um Oftentimes what I'm kind of writing with or against are my own feelings about things and sometimes ways that I don't, I don't even understand why I have this feeling about something. And so kind of one way that that shows up is lifting things out of the headlines or out of the real world that I have feelings about, you know, obviously a lot of the lady upstairs was kind of this, um, I felt cathartic to me, (laughs) cathartic, uh, exercise against me, you know, not against me too, but in terms of these bad men, you know, I, I started writing this book actually before the Harvey Weinstein thing broke. And there's a pretty obvious Weinstein parallel in the book, but it was just the idea that we have had for so long of the notorious casting couch King that like, even without a name, you know, these people are out there. And so kind of trying to write against the idea of like, this is so legendary and notorious that we know it happens and we're still not really curbing it. And what would somebody do to change the power structure in that way? And being inside of Hollywood as you are, do you find, uh, do you see this on any kind of daily basis? Some of that uh, we'll call it bad behavior. Uh, Well, I, I'm not personally too deep inside of Hollywood. So I have luckily enough don't have any sort of um, exposure to that book publishing. People tend to be less, uh, less creepy. <laughs> Knock on one. <laughs> oh, okay. A, a third less creepy than your ordinary creep. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> now I love your protagonist, Joe. I just want to let's, let's spend a little time with her. This is a woman. She's a tough gal. She doesn't take guff. <laughs> Um, she's on a mission to blackmail CD Hollywood dudes primarily. Um, 
what I found interesting is, as I was quite frankly, and as a guy, was appreciating the fact that she was doing some of this cleanup, my call cleanup work. But she also has a little bit of a what's the phrase I want to use? Not naughty eye, but she doesn't always treat women uh, as particularly fabulous either. Right. Right. Absolutely. And that was, um, I really wanted to keep Joe away from being kind of a clean cut vigilante situation here, but that I thought was a little, a little easy that I, uh, I am certainly not advocating for a world in which this is, this is the counterbalance to bad actors, bad faith actors as like pop up, you know, homegrown blackmail agencies. Like that's not what I want to see. It was more playing out because I think I am interested in that too, in the way that women withhold uphold certain tenets of the patriarchy and uphold this toxic parts of society that we're in, that it's not, um, clean cut. Joe Joe thinks in one way or has allowed herself to think that what she's doing with these girls is empowering to them, but she's also using them just as much as the men are in certain ways, you know, for her own personal gain versus their experience and happiness. Well, without putting you on my uh, doctor couch, not the casting couch, <laughs> but the doctor couch, with, uh, shy of that, do you find, has anyone asked you or do you have you asked yourself, oh, there's a little bit of there's a little bit of Joe in me and I'm not afraid to admit it. Uh, certain parts of me, for sure. My sense of humor is Joe. Uh, certain experiences in there are things that feel very even if not directly parallel to my life, like um, uh, my way of kind of thinking or dealing with those experiences. Um, I'm definitely not Joe <laughs> in many other respects. But, yeah, of course, there's parts of me inside of her. Yeah. And speaking of that uh, sense of humor, I, I found myself as I'm reading uh, that humor inside of Joe, it always makes me go, how much of this is Hallie? I wonder <laughs> if she's really that funny, too, because it's an acerbic uh, uh, wit that doesn't uh, that that is uh, seasoned with time, we'll yeah. say. <laughs> um, I would say, you know, Joe's sense of humor it was almost like given to your meanest funny impulses on the page. And I made myself laugh a lot. Even if other people were laughing, I was enjoying some of like Joe's zingers. Um, I don't think I'm quite that acerbic in real life, I hope. But yeah. uh, it was kind of like, okay, take where you're already at and then turn it up a few notches. <laughs> and that's just fun, isn't it? It's kind of yeah. like, uh, it's kind of like uh, uh, literary Halloween. I just pulled that out of the air. Like you're you're getting to dress up as someone else. That's part oh, of the- yeah. Part of the fun of writing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually, my second book um, that I'm working on right now deals a lot with method acting. And it's occurred to me how much of writing is almost method writing, like that you're pretending to kind of live inside the skin and see things in this certain way. And that there's this parallel there that's, uh, you know, nobody's going to quite as extremes, I would hope, as some of the actors do. But it there is like a component of that. You kind of live as this person a little bit. Now, that's fascinating. And when does this book come out? That book will be out um, spring 2023. You have a working title yet? We're calling it, currently, we're calling it The Hurricane Blonde. Oh. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, isn't your profile pic on Twitter blonde? <laughs> I'm switching it up. And COVID, you know, I'm trying on different things. We couldn't go anywhere for a while, so I'm trying on different personas. I'll probably be blonde again soon. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, I, I like this color. It's nice. Oh, thank you. Um, okay. So I read, we're talking about Long Goodbye, uh, or we didn't mention that mm -hmm. book, but I know Chandler, that's kind of like the uh, quintessential choice that people use. But um, uh, you made a comment somewhere 
that nobody packs in as much pain as James Kane. And I thought, how do you feel about uh, adding that to the lineup uh, as far as, um, you know, integrating that kind of uh, influence to your writing? I remember what I was thinking when I said that, which is uh, to me, and I'm curious about your opinion on this too. um, Chandler is so chewy. He's kind of long-winded is wrong because that implies that you're kind of bored. That's not it. But he's got this chewy language that you really want to dig into. Things can go 300 pages without a mystery truly getting solved. Like you're just kind of along this like lazy river of gorgeous beauty. And James Kane is like 110 pages. You're in, you're out and it hurts. Like, and I think that there are lessons to be learned. I mean, I feel this way about every book I read. There's always something you can glean from anything you're reading, whether or not it's, I don't want to do it like this, or I love how they're doing this, or this would work better if, you know, like I consider every book um, a little lesson. And I think that Kane and Chandler, which is so funny that they're both kind of these pillars of noir, um, I think can teach very opposite lessons too. Like Kane is just so, so tight. And I think that that's a really good skill to master, whereas Chandler is so free flowing and so interesting with the language. I think that you can kind of pull things from both. Yeah, I would call Chandler uh, languorous. Mm, yes, exactly. And Kane uh, succinct. Yes, yes. And I, it's funny because you said you would be curious as to what I thought. So I'm going to uh, impose my thought here. It's funny, be- and I was thinking about this this weekend <clears throat> because I'm reading so many books for the show, and I read. Uh, I I reviewed two books this weekend, yours, which was concise, and another guy who's going to be on the show uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, David Ellis, and his book. And I looked at it. I'm like, God, that's a big read. You know, you you can spot when you read a lot. Okay, that's going to be like 4, 430, 460. Much different than uh, 295, 3, 320. like many, my attention span has shortened. And I don't know if it's because of time and social media and maybe age. I mean, at, even at 39, I have uh, challenges. And, I, <laughs> and But my point is, I like, uh, I like getting in and getting out because I think it's part of it. I can read more. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I find myself doing this. Okay. Could you have, I got the point. Yeah. I don't want to spend too much time on this alley, but I've got the point. You could probably cut a good chunk of that. Mm-hmm. And that's not disrespectful. Cause I don't want to take away from it because I know that you're, especially in his particular book, you're layering so mm-hmm. many things that have to reveal in a, it's like a domino effect later, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I just, I, I dig the shorter ridge. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear you. And I mean, the, for me, it's always when a book is really great and really holds your attention and you're like, oh yes, I could go 500 pages with this. And then sometimes you're in some books that are 500 pages and you're like, oh no, we had, we had like 150 good pages here and now we're, (laughs) um, so it just, you know, if you, if it's working, it's great. That's what I think. Well, and what, uh, what did Elmore Leonard always say? Take out the words that people don't like or don't read, you know? Yeah. Uh, all you ever have to do, if you, I, I find myself doing this, if I'm writing something, I'm like, that seems like a lot of words. I'll pick up a Elmore Leonard oh, yes, uh, same. Yeah, and go, okay, how did he say that sentence mm-hmm. equally as succinct yet with, yeah, with fewer words. And uh, it's just a great primer. 
Really, really is. I totally, I agree with that too. And I feel like he's um, just such a straight shot in the arm. You read it and you're just like in it and you're like, yes, okay, clean. It's great. Do you have a favorite of his, by the way, as I'm asking? Gold Coast, I think is my oh. favorite of his. So good. I mean, Out of Sight is great too. Rampant, like I, I, there's even, even the Elmore Leonard books that I don't love as much as some of the others are still great. You know, yeah. like it's still, you're always with him for however long you're with the book. It's amazing. Rum Punch, 52 yes. Pickup. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, side note, I was living in Detroit, had a radio show in Detroit back in the early, mid 80s, uh, late 80s. And um, the gal I was dating at the time lived right down the street from Elmer Leonard. And I used to say to her, man, I would oh, love, wow. love to go knock on the door. She's like, oh, yeah, you don't want to do that. And I'm like, <laughs> I wish I had. Yeah. Yeah, um, of course. Yeah. yeah, I know. I would have been just kind of creepily outside his building. <laughs> In the bushes. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Could you, yeah. could you blurb my book, please? Sure, sure. Yeah, nobody does that. Right. Um, one of my favorite things, Hallie, about this book, it maybe it's because I did three tours of duty in Los Angeles, is how L.A. plays a lead character. I love it. You know, there's a lot of things I hate about L.A. We all do. Mm -hmm. But there's so sure. many things that you really love and you did, you, you made Los Angeles a character that you really, you, you feel it. And there's no other city that could really come close to that complex seediness with, with all that sparkling glamour atop, there's so much darkness underneath. Thank you. Thank you. That's, I love hearing that. Um, thinking about Los Angeles was such, and like, how, how I wanted to translate Los Angeles onto the page was such a huge part of this book that I started writing this book when I moved to LA. So it noir was kind of the window at which I was learning this new city that I lived in. And obviously it has a great history in terms of film and book noir history, but like, it's also just a dark, interesting seedy history of the city itself. It's, um, as you pointed out, there's so much glamour and sparkle here and then so much rot not very far underneath the surface. I find it endlessly interesting, but it was also, um, yeah, it, I think that Los Angeles in The Lady Upstairs will always have a special place in my heart because it was like I was learning the city as I was writing about the city. It was a really special experience. Yeah. I lived in Studio City the first time I lived there. And the thing I could never get over was the fact, especially when I, I used to work down at um, on Sunset and La Brea in the uh, CNN Tower. Uh-huh. And you'd see all the sparkle and all that glamour, but you'd see homeless everywhere. Yeah. And the contradiction and juxtaposition mm -hmm. rather all the time was so sad, really. So sad, so troubling that there is the city of extreme, extreme, extreme wealth and then just extreme poverty. And we can't seem to come up with a real solution that's helping people in the way that we need to. Yeah, yet. it is sad. Hey, speaking of which, talking about you said you talked about coming to LA where did you go where were you from so I'm from originally a little town in Northern California called Arcata it's up in the Redwood Forest um and then I lived in San Francisco the Bay Area for about five years before I moved to LA and speaking of California uh and I hope this is an educated question and not a corny softball which I have certainly been accused of but with a Bachelors of creating uh, in creative writing from uh, UC Santa Cruz and a master's from Otis. How important do you feel that a higher education mm. is for writers today? 
I think it is entirely, entirely, entirely possible to write great books without a higher education background about it. Um, I think for me, my MFA experience uh, was really helpful in that it helped me, um, gave me time to focus on the book for two years, which was a privilege, you know, a huge privilege to be able to get to do that. It's not a cheap endeavor. Um, if it's fully funded, that's great. If, if it's not a fully funded MFA, that's like a big question in my mind of, is this worth your time? And I think that's, everyone has to decide that themselves. Um, I loved my experience. I made lifelong friends. I'm a better writer for it, but by no means do I think that an MFA or degree in writing is the only path towards writing. And I also think we have some, um, you know, the MFA has kind of has become a little bit of a degree mill in certain cases, and it is an expensive proposition um, with no guarantee of financial return, which so I, I'm I'm very split on that question. Honestly, it's not a softball question at all. I I feel it's a hard question. Yeah, I always I have said this before. You can tell when someone has an MFA by the way they write, and I don't mean that that there are words because well, you have an MFA, and I and I don't mean this is a any other way but a compliment. You um. You don't write like a literary fiction writer will often write, which is languorous and wordy and, you know, blah, 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 Um, which is all great. So don't let me get that miscalculated. But you can just there's a God, what is it? I'm, 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 I'm fumbling, but there's a certain specific thing that uh that higher education does provide you. It's a it's a polish. It's a it's a it's a. It's an indescribable thing, as you clearly can see, but it's so palpable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. God, that was a lot of words to not say a whole lot. <laughs> no, I think I know what you mean. It's, you know, um, and I think there's good and bad aspects of what you're talking about. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, if you go to a poetry reading and someone has very established poet voice, and that can be like a really good vehicle to like listen to poetry, but then somebody comes along and they have a different voice. I think that there is... A, a little fear. I didn't have this experience at my program, but I could see a fear of that kind of um, that that's both a sheen that's helpful, but it might also be a little flattening too for people and their uniqueness of voice. And this is an interesting question. I hope you mentioned that you had a chance to work on the book. So I'm assuming the lady upstairs is the book that you were working on during the MFA. Yes, it was. Yeah. Okay. So that is that pretty standard operating procedure to say, Hey, whatever that book is going to be that you're going to go out there and launch and try to find an agent. That is the book you'll work on for the duration of your degree. You know, uh, at my program, um, novels and collections of short stories were greatly encouraged. Oftentimes kind of the traditional, I think it's shifting now, but forever the traditional model was that somebody would come out of, um, their MFA program with like a, perfect collection of short stories that the MFA for a long time was really about like perfecting these little jewels of short stories. And I think now it's flipped a little bit more to novels. Um, So the understanding was that, yes, you were working on a book length project, whether that was a novel or collection of short stories or a memoir um, that you would be kind of trying eventually to launch. Uh, and I got lucky in that the one that I was working on actually did become my debut book, which is not always the case. So I feel very lucky. 
Okay, yeah. which is the perfect tee up to <clears throat> where did you go to pitch it? Did you go to a convention or did you just do that mass querying to agents? I did do the mass querying to agents. You know, I had um, a pretty good spreadsheet of who I wanted to pitch to and why. Um, and so you mentioned my agent, Sharon, earlier. So I had kind of this, um, in my mind, fairy tale romance with Sharon, which was she was one of my like, absolutely, yes, please, would love to work with you agents. Um, and so I queried her, kind of cold queried her. And she asked for the full, read it, and sent me back like, it was, it was a pass, but she sent me back like eight paragraphs of feedback. Here's what I liked. Here's what I thought wasn't working. If, if you end up revising to this direction, you know, I would love to see it again. And so when you're querying, and I'm sure you've had this experience that it's just kind of like throwing a message in a bottle into the ocean and being like, <laughs> somebody, you know, um, and I understand because agents are so busy and they're getting so many queries, but it, to get any sort of personal feedback at that stage was so like that. <laughs> I was of course devastated that she wasn't like, yes, immediately I'll represent you. But I was like, oh my God, this is so helpful. You know, it was so helpful. And that was actually the thing that led me to pitch wars was Sharon's feedback and going, okay, I know I still have a lot more work to do. So then I submitted it to uh, pitch wars and worked on it um, for four months with Lane Fargo, who's a thriller writer, a wonderful writer, wonderful mentor, wonderful friend. Um, and we, at the end of the pitch wars with the agent showcase, Sharon and I reconnected and this time she offered to represent me. So it was really, I was, I lucked out. So I did kind of the traditional um, cold query path and then into pitch wars, which really kind of gave me a big boost. I felt Two things. If you believe in uh, <clears throat> the power of intention, for instance, uh, you are a great, you're a living example of that. I mean, what a great way for you to stay steady and true to the intent that you had. So I Thank applaud you. you for that. Yeah. And the other thing is, um, uh, it's a great encouragement to listeners of this show that go, oh, you know what? Um, there's so many agents. There's so many people trying to vie for it. You know, mm -hmm. it's because Hallie's really super talented and so forth. But the thing is, I always say, forgive me, I'm not going to remember the name because I interview a lot of people, but someone was on recently. It will come to me as soon as we hang up that said, no, here's my encouragement. Uh, load your shotgun and just do it in spurts. Just blow it out and go for uh, go for as many as you want. Because they were referencing the comment that some agents will go, "Well, I, I want you to only approach one or two at a time." And I'm like, "What sense does that make?" No. So, yeah, no, and you know, um, I've seen the agents have that requirement, and I think honestly, it's kind of a, um. Antiquated. Unrealistic, antiquated and unrealistic, you know, like agents uh, and I have agents have all my sympathy in the world. I think they probably get a lot of weird stuff from people. So it's not a job I'm looking necessarily to do, but they get, you know, they have a huge flood in their inbox. So they might take six months to get back to you in that six months. You're not supposed to reach out to anyone else. You know, I, I understand why you would say that on one level, but on another, it's not really realistic or fair to writers. So I'm kind of like, that's not, that's not an expectation somebody should have. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it would be different if you got uh, you got it whittled down to two people and you were playing sure. one or the other, you know. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Before we get to rapid fire questions, I have a question that I ask all my authors and you're going to be giving me a great piece of uh, input. I know. What would you say is your best piece of writing advice? That the power is in drafting, that 
you need to just get something down on the page and make it better, make it better, make it better. This is, and I'm saying this because I also struggle to internalize this. I so often sit down and want what I write that day to be good. I want it to be good. I want it to feel good for me to write. And a lot of the times that is not how it feels. And I still have to sit there and do the work because eventually you'll come out with something that you can shape into something better, but you have to fill the blank page. That's my biggest is, you know, fill the blank page so that you have something to make better. And would you also agree that you shouldn't uh, spend too much time judging it in process, that you should spend more time just going with instinct and letting all the, the polishing happen later? Yeah, absolutely. I think the more you can silence that inner critic, the better. Just because, uh, yeah, first drafts are crappy, like across the board. There are probably people out there who write really good first drafts, and I don't really want to know them because I'll be so jealous I'll die. (laughs) But like first drafts are just crappy, and you know that on some level, and it's not helpful to tell yourself that over and over. So a trick that I have used lately to get over that is I will – leave little comments and notes to myself um, as I write, you know, on my um, Microsoft Word, my kind of like track changes, I'll put a comment that's like, this is bad. This is so bad. Like I have to just acknowledge that it's bad and like mark it so that I can come back to it. But kind of just even that moment of um, self-deprecation or (laughs) self-abuse like makes me able to move forward. Just being able to say like, okay, we know this is bad. Like I hear you. I, I acknowledge that you're like, angry that I'm not writing better prose. Me too. We got to keep going. So that's my advice for dealing with the inner critic is like indulge it for a moment, but don't let it slow you down. That is really awesome. That's, that's so good. And I don't know why that particular aspect of writing is so challenging. I suppose it's, you know, it's a little piece of imposter syndrome. It's a little bit of just flat out insecurity, like, God, I just suck. But, you know, I always say this, Hallie, don't you find yourself, you'll write something one day and you're like, eh, whatever, and you'll put it aside and you'll come back later. Maybe it's a short story, maybe whatever. And you go and you pick it up and you go, oh, my God, that is really good. Mm-hmm. So that is that is such a nice feeling. Yes. Or even uh, I, I love the that is really good moments, but I'll even settle for coming back to something being like, this is not as bad as I thought. Even that <laughs> feels like a win. <laughs> This does not suck as bad as I thought it did. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> that is always a happy day. <laughs> oh, it's the little joys in life, isn't yeah, it? All exactly. right. Time for a little rapid fire questions. When writing, do you prefer, Hallie, do you prefer loud and quirky coffee shops or quiet, laid back writing spots? Um, somewhere in between. I need a little bit of noise. <laughs> Would you be more tempted to be in a coffee shop than with headphones on? Mm, yes. Yeah. yes. Okay. Fair enough. All right. Hey, when you road trip, if you do, and I'm assuming you are, you, you're an adventuresome gal, either with friends or alone, what's playing on either the radio or your smartphone? Um, probably a podcast you're wrong about or uh, how did this get made? I love the how did this get made? It's so good. <laughs> yeah. I know it's crazy that there's so many podcasts popping up every single day, but there's, you know, it's just, there's something for everybody. Yep. All right. And finally, Hollywood has just bought the rights to Lady Upstairs. I don't know if you knew this or not. They just called me earlier before the Wonderful. show. Yeah. <laughs> they told me I could break the news to you. That's great. I love money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> They have asked that you come aboard as a producer, which I, I said that would be perfectly okay. 
And with that duty, you get to pick who plays both Joe and the lady upstairs, which we never really talked about. So let's say, who would you pick? You probably had them in your head in some form or fashion while you're writing. Um, I would say uh, I did. I uh, I am always imagined kind of a Jennifer Lawrence type as Joe. Um, and then uh, for the lady upstairs, I had pictured maybe somebody like Christina Hendricks. Uh, Oh, such good choices. Folks, that should tell you something right there. Well, folks, if you'd like to learn more, first of all, I got to tell you, follow Hallie uh, on Twitter at Hallie underscore Sutton and the website, which is a little malfunctioning right now. (laughs) It'll be up eventually. (laughs) It's coming back. HallieSutton.com may be through author bites. Just saying, you know, could be. Anyway, this has been delightful. I'm so glad we finally got our schedules coordinated. Me too. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. This has been really lovely. Yeah. And we cannot wait for, uh, I did not jot down the title. What was it again? The Hurricane Blonde coming spring 2023 from Putnam. Um, I believe it's uh, up for pre-order on Amazon, but we're, the cover is not yet public. Okay. Make sure we get a copy here at the Thriller Zone because sure. I want to have you back on. Okay. Would love that. Okay. Enjoy the rest of your week. Happy Monday. And thank again, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. This was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you to Hallie Sutton for stopping by the Thriller Zone to talk about the lady upstairs. How good was that? Ooh, baby. Now, this leads me to next week when on the Thriller Zone, you're going to meet the gentleman, David Ellis, and his book is called look closer no really look closer (laughs) this book was amazing i'm gonna save all the juice for the show but i'm just gonna say this is a book and it's a big one as you can see this book is something you're going to be talking about thinking about for days to come i guarantee it before i go i want to say a couple quick things Thanks to Warwick's Bookstores for believing in the show. Thanks for AuthorBytes.com for believing in the show. Thanks to you for believing in this show and supporting me with your great comments and your subscriptions. You know, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is YouTube.com slash The Thriller Zone. I realize I need to talk about this more often because people are slowly starting to join and subscribe, which is really cool. Also, thanks for swinging by TheThrillerZone.com, which is our website, and leaving your reviews. Some people leave it on Apple. That's cool, too. Anyway, either way we get the praise, we appreciate it. And it really does help the show. Trust me. All right. I'm out of here. I got some reading to do. I'll see you next. I'm David Temple, your host, by the way, in case I forgot to tell you. And I'll see you next time for another edition of The Thriller Zone. Your favorite authors. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.